0: Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, in the house called Imani, a people of faith, fellowship, and praise. I'm excited to be here. Are you excited to be? Amen. 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 Praise God. First, let me just thank the pastors and the elders for the opportunity to speak from their pulpit. And this is my first time, actually, so I am very grateful for the opportunity, and I, and I pray that the, the message that the Lord has in store, it will speak to somebody's heart. It was written for me. So, if you share in my situation, take, take whatever there is for you, and just praise God, just praise God. I bring you greetings from the Salt Lake City Central SDA Church, and that is our current church where my husband pastors as a senior pastor, Pastor Sheldon Bryan, and he he sends his greetings to you. Um, And I pray that, and over there, they're having a great time, and I pray that here, we too will experience the joy of the Lord in this place. So the message that I have today is entitled, Dig the Ditches. Are you ready to dig some ditches? Okay, let's get to work. Let's get to work. The Asian financial crisis, called the Asian Contagion, was a period of financial crisis that gripped much of Asia beginning during July 1997. And it raised fears of a worldwide economic meltdown due to financial contagion. The crisis started in Thailand, with the financial collapse of its currency caused by the decision of the government to float the Thailand currency island eventually acquired a burden of foreign debt that made the country effectively bankrupt even before the collapse of its currency. As the crisis spread, most of Southeast Asia and Japan was slumming currencies, devalued stock markets, and other asset prices. Foreign debt to GDP ratios rose from 100% to 167% in the four large Asian economies during 1993 to 1996. And then it shot up beyond 180% during the worst crisis in 1997. Facts. Until 1997, Asia attracted almost half of the total capital inflow into the developing countries. They maintained high interest rates to attract foreign investors who are looking for a high rate of return. As a result, the region's economies receive a large inflow of money and experience a dramatic run-up in the asset prices. Thailand's economy developed into a bubble fueled by hot money. More and more was required as the size of the bubble grew. This achievement was widely acclaimed by financial institutions including the IMF and the World Bank, and was known as part of the Asian Economic Miracle. Does this sound familiar? I went back because we're living in the situation in the United States of America. Many economists believe that the Asian crisis was by policies that distorted incentives within the lender-borrower relationship. The resulting large quantities of credit that became available generated a highly leveraged economic climate and pushed up asset prices to an unsustainable level. Hint, hint. These asset prices eventually began to collapse, causing individuals and companies to default on debt obligations. The resulting panic among lenders led to a large withdrawal of credit from the crisis countries, causing a credit crunch and further bankruptcies. In addition, as foreign investors attempted to withdraw their money, the exchange market was flooded with the currencies of the crisis countries, putting depreciative pressure on their exchange rates. And of course the IMF came up with a solution. We call them rescue packages or stimulus funds in the American society. This is what we call a financial crisis. Does this sound close to what we're experiencing currently in the United States today? The housing market bubble and the recession, financial crises And many individuals today are frantic, trying to figure out what to do and who to be blamed. In fact, recently New York prosecutors have asked Goldman Sachs, one of the largest U.S. investment banks, to explain its behavior in the run-up to the financial crisis. The probes into the behavior of Goldman and some of its peers signal increasing determination by the U.S. government agencies to investigate the actions of banks in the years leading up to the financial crisis and to determine whether misdeeds by executives made the meltdown worse. Many of us were taken by surprise with this financial meltdown. Both Christians and non-Christians suffered great loss. But didn't God say he would not reveal anything? He will not do anything unless he reveals it to his prophets? And he did tell us over 2,000 years ago that crisis moments, perilous times, would come. Perilous times have come. And we're living in perilous times. Crisis moments where men nowadays, lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasures, lovers of money, covetous, proud, unthankful, Timothy says, more than lovers of God. Crisis is here in the United States of America, in this global economy. What is crisis? The Wikipedia definition for crisis is any event that is or expected to lead to unstable and dangerous situation that could affect an individual, a group, or a whole society. It's a critical and decisive moment in time, a testing time, some may say, an emergency time, some may call it. The Merriam-Webster defines crisis as the turning point for better or worse recovery or death in an acute illness. Business Dictionary defines crisis as a critical event or point of decision which, if not handled appropriately or in a timely manner, may turn into a disaster. Do you sense some disaster around this place? Crisis comes in various forms, maybe personal crisis, something that happens in your life that triggers an extreme tension requiring major action. It could be an economic crisis, which results in a sharp transition to recession. Case in point, the U.S. It could be a financial crisis, as in the Asian contagion that I spoke about. Or environmental crisis. Human activity causing lasting consequences. And then the international crisis. One that increased and heightened the perception of the nations and also heightened anxiety and everybody's sitting on the edge of their seats wondering what next? What do we do now? Where do we go from here? What is about to happen? Crises. From these definitions, you can see four defining characteristics of crisis. One, tends to be unexpected, a surprise. Happy birthday, surprise. It creates some form of uncertainty within us. It seems to threaten, our important goals or basic values, and finally, it calls for the need to change. To change, our story today opens with a king in crisis. Let's turn our Bibles to 2nd Kings chapter 3, 2nd Kings chapter 3, and we will start with verses 1 through 7. a king in crisis. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father or like his mother, for he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin, he departed not therefrom. Second Kings chapter three, we are at verse four. And Mesha king of Moab, was a sheep master, and rendered unto the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and a hundred thousand rams with wool. But it came to pass, when Ahab was dead, that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And King Jehoram went out of Samaria the same time and numbered all Israel. And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab hath rebelled against me. Wilt thou go with me against Moab to battle? And he said, I will go up. I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. Jehoram, the son of Ahab. The most evil king in all of Israel, Ahab. The Bible records in 1 Kings 16, 29-33. So clearly Jehoram would not have a good start. He has inherited already a spiritual crisis where he has forgotten his God, the true and living God, and turned to Baal. That's his inheritance from his dad. And even though he tried to do some reform, he did not complete the reformation. He also had a personal crisis here. The very thought that Misha, the king of Moab, would defy his authority was sufficient to trigger extreme tension and stress, thus requiring crucial actions to reassert his authority. You see, Moab bordered Israel on the southeast side, Judah on the east, and northeast of Moab was Edom. Moabites were descendants of Lot's son, Moab. And if you recall, the Israelites were allowed to, har- to, to beat upon Moabites, but forbidden to wage war against them. If you remember when they were entering the promised land, they did not go through Moab. They went through, I think it was Sion, that king, and defeated them. But the Lord told them not to war against Moab. So there was some brotherly, there was some relationship between Israel and Moab. So to some extent, the relationship was friendly. Now and again there would be wars and there would be peaceable moments. But this ended when David decided to go against Moab. He conquered the Moabites. In 2 Samuel 8, there was a list of countries that he conquered the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Seers, the Edomites. He conquered. And during this war, Moab became slave to Israel. Moab was now under the government of Israel. And so you see here, Misha, king of Moab, after being under slavery or bondage for so long, he was under bondage from David's time until Ahab was dead. That's a long time. And so he decided to reassert his independence. No, I'm not going to be sending you any more tributes. It's over. Ahab is dead. It's over. Of course, Jehoram was surprised by Misha's stand to forfeit servitude. This was totally unexpected. It came as a surprise, hence crisis moment. He was in crisis. William Marston said that every crisis offers you extra desired power. And this is exactly where he was. The desire for more power, for authority. Not only was this a personal crisis, but he also faced an economic crisis, similar to what President Obama faced at the beginning of his term. We are all well too familiar with the ripple effect of our economic crisis, the housing market meltdown, the high unemployment rate, the loss of businesses and investments, depression, recession, and the need for intercession. To lose a thousand sheep and with wool, a hundred thousand sheep with wool, and a hundred thousand ram annually would most definitely create some bubble in their economic system. And so these uncertainties led Jehoram to increase The perception of threat. It's no longer my personal crisis. It's no longer my economic crisis. But this is no international crisis. And so he sent messages to Jehoshaphat. Hey, this guy here is defying all the authorities of the land. He's a threat to us. Let's get to war. Sounds like President Bush back then. We need to handle Saddam appropriately in a timely manner let's do it. The uncertainties of King Jehoram led him to heighten the anxiety of the neighboring countries. Red alert. And it. He sent out from Samaria and mobilized the armies of Israel. Edom, who was also under servitude of Israel, so they had no choice. They had to be involved. But Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, he decided to join in. After all, Judah and Israel, there were one people. During the, after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom divided. And so there was some allegiance to Israel. We will protect my people. In fact, you are as I am. My horses are your horses, he said. Yes, King Misha's response took Jehoram by surprise. Unexpected. He was faithful to my father. And I expected nothing less, I can imagine him saying. Misha questioned my authority. He's now threatening my security and my economic values. He must be handled in a timely yet appropriate manner. Let's go to work. What crises are you faced with today? Is it personal? A thorn in the flesh that your family struggles with day in, day out, year in, year out? Is it drug addiction? Is it a dead-end relationship? Disobedient and rebellious teenage t- children who threaten your authority time after time? Someone you've tried to help but has turned against you? Is it a spouse that you've worked for better and you vowed for better or worse, but now the spouse decides they had signed up for better, period? No worse. Is it a health crisis? And you are uncertain of the turning point at this time. Will it be for recovery or death? Is it financial? The house you've invested all your money into for over 15 years is now an abandoned lot, a farm field for marijuana. And you are left homeless, hopeless, unemployed and uninsured, broke and broken. One psychologist suggests that many of our crises, except for the natural disasters, of course, are man-instituted. And so we experience the trauma of the unexpected because, one, we live in denial of the impending crisis. We knew the market was going to go down, the housing market was going to collapse, but we, we kept denying it, and we pumped money into it. I was caught in the trap. I thought it had hit the bottom when I went to buy my home but it was just started to go down, and I deny the possibility that it was gonna go any further. Where am I? Homeless. (laughs) Secondly, we allow ourselves to be tricked into believing we are doing something for reasons that are false, i.e., we do the wrong things for the right reason. Case in point, you want to eliminate a $50,000 debt from credit cards, auto loans, student loans. So what you decide to do? Purchase a home. A $400,000 home. It's a loan. And hoping to, e- to obtain equity within two to three years to take care of your $50,000 loan. But now you're further in debt. Hint, hint. Who are you tricking? It was John F. Kennedy who said that the word crisis, when written in Chinese, is composed of two characters. One represents danger, the other represents opportunity. Danger, opportunity. In your crisis moment, which path do you tend to take, danger or opportunity? One grave danger or mistake that we make in our crisis is to take the initiative without God. I have no problems with individuals who take the initiative. In fact, I admire people who take the inif- initiative. One businesswoman said there are three types of people in this world. Those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who wonder, what happened? Where are you in your crisis moment? I love people who take the initiative initiative. I admire game changers like Kobe Bryant. I admire pace setters, shakers and movers. But we ebb on danger zone when we do so without God. Saul, the first king of Israel, he took the initiative. He was doing something good. But in the apparent delay of Samuel, he was doing it to appease the people to gain more control. He took the initiative without God, and hence he was rejected by God. Here are the three kings from the West. Jehoram, Jehoshaphat, Edom's king identified their crisis. They took the initiative without God. You would expect that their, with their spiritual heritage, someone would see God's opinion on the matter. But no, they decided to war, and they even plotted their path. Perfectly, We will go through the wilderness of Edom. If you're not seeking God's viewpoint on your crisis, then who is calling your cadence? Whose drum roll are you marching to? Check yourself. Without God's perspective on the crisis at hand, your plans will be solely assumptions and faulty. They expected, based on the experts, that Moab would be a fertile land, with plenty of water for their time on the battlefield. You see, the experts say that Moab is surrounded by rivers on every side, the Arnon, the Dibon, the Dimon, the Nimrim, and the Jordan. The experts say the soil would be fertile, the rainfall is fairly plentiful, and the climate, although hot in summer, it's cooler than the western countries, Israel, Judah, Edom. The greener grass on the other side of the fence mentality. How many of us, when in crisis, look to the other side? A little conflict in your marriages, and you tend to look over the fence. It seems greener over there. Because of the assumptions, they brought just enough water for the journey. Just enough water, because there is plenty of water in Mohab. I liken these three kings to the five foolish virgins. Just enough is never enough when the bridegroom tarries. And now what could have been a setup for God's glory is now a setback. You see, the weather pattern in Moab changed. So it was drier than usual. They expected rainfall, but it was drier. And now in the drive to made or to handle the crisis without God, they encountered a bigger problem. No water. How are you going to fight a battle? Thirsty, dehydrated, your camels are thirsty and dehydrated. How are you going to survive? Can you see the ripple effect? When you attempt to resolve your crises on your own without God, you create a bigger problem. The next ripple is the blame game. If you go to verse 10, the king of Israel, Jehoram, said, At last, that the the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. You did not consult God. Why is he to be blamed? God has called you to deliver you into the hand of Moab. It's interesting to note that God seems to be the last person to be consulted, but the first to receive the blame when faced with crisis. So how do you know you are taking the initiative without God? I'm glad you asked. One, check yourself. Have you prayed about your crisis? If you have not talked to God about it, you are taking the initiative without God. Are you willing to align your life with God so that he can demonstrate his power in you? If you're not willing, then you're taking the initiative without God. I call it the twig. Does prayer serve to convince God to change your circumstances rather than to prepare you to do God's activities? Are you simply praying, Lord, get me out of this. I just need to get out of this. Save my home save my insurance or are you willing to are you willing to say god prepare me for whatever it is that you plan for me what's your prayer life like do you cry out to god for the blessings and the benefits rather than being to be a blessing and a benefit to someone else in your crisis are you looking over on the other side of the fence people jump from church to church if there's one little problem in the church One little crisis moment, looking for greener pastures. You are taking the initiative without God. The story is told of an old man and his son and his wife. They've never visited town. They were always in the country. They were afraid of the city because the city would corrupt them. And so they did everything in the country. But one day, the boy turned 16. He was now a teenager. And he decided, Dad, I want to go to the city. I want to see what it's like. And so his dad said, okay, we will take you. You know, he bugged him after several years or days or months, and he decided to take him. And so the three wife, father, son, got dressed, jumped in their car, and they drove to the city. When they got to the city, the the father was afraid that anything would corrupt the wife. So he told the wife to stay in the car. I will go check the place out and get back to you. And so he and the son, they went They had a hotel booked reserve, and so they went to the hotel, and as they entered, they noticed huge chandeliers coming down from the ceiling, and they were in awe, what is this? Such big lights in a hotel. You know, they see doors are just sliding and opening, sliding and opening, and they were amazed. There was water coming out of rocks flowing inside of the hotel without creating a mess. They were in awe. And so they decided, to go to this sliding door this door that opens and closes people just get in get out and they didn't know what this was so they stood there for a little bit just observing what's happening and so he noticed there was a little old woman who came up and pressed that little button and the door just slid open and the old lady went in and then three seconds later the door slid open again and this beautiful blonde just came out and he turned to his son and said, go get my wife. She needs to get in here. Crisis moment. Trying to take the initiative. Trying, looking for greener pastures. Looking for the new and improved version. And That's what he did. You see, in Jeremiah 2, verse 13, God echoed the pain in his heart for his people. He said, my people have committed two great evils. One They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, they have dug out broken cisterns which can hold no water. Broken cisterns which can hold no water. You see, God's people had forgotten that he forgave all their iniquities. He healed all their diseases. He renewed their life like the eagles. He satisfied their mouth with good things, the psalmist David says. He redeemed their life from destruction. They had forsaken. They had forgotten all about this, Taking the initiative without God. And then to dug broken cisterns. That's like us going for this excessive, this excessive desire to gain more control. The excessive desire to have more things in our crisis. The excessive determination to have more money. The excessive need to be more famous when we're in our crisis situation—that is what we call greed, and that's called your broken cisterns trying to hold sand in your in the palm of your hand. So, how do you turn your crises into opportunities? I will share with you two key principles, and then I will sit down. First, seek God's counsel first, always underline always seek God's counsel first always God's counsel you should seek first did everybody catch it? you see in their double trouble the king of Misha, now the impending defeat due to the thirst and the possible dehydration, Jehoshaphat sought for God he knew the true and living God, that was the God Judah served. And so he knew he could call on this almighty God. He knew him because Abraham called him God Almighty. Moses called him Lord. David knew him to be the rock, the strong deliverer, his shepherd. And so he was reminded in the moment of crisis, in the moment of this big problem, he was reminded of the true and living god and he sought for counsel henry blackaby suggested that when we seek god first always he will reveal his character to us according to our needs and his purpose you will come to know him as comforter when you grieve when you're in need he will demonstrate that he is your provider When you face serious challenges, he will reveal that he is God Almighty. Whatever your sorrowful situations, whatever your present problems are, whatever your turning point troubles, whatever your current crises, your unexpected uncertainties may be, view it in the light of God's counsel. What is he teaching you? And you will come to know him in a dimension that you've never known him before. Take it from me. I've been there. I've been through the crisis. And I've come to know God, the true and living God, as my deliverer, my provider, the one who sustains, the one who redeems, the one who satisfies. I lack nothing in my crisis. Remember, Christ hears our cries in our crises. Seek his counsel. He hears. Second principle, follow God's plan all the way all the way. Let's read verse, verses 14-19 to 19, which, was, which was our scripture reading and it says Elisha said as the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand surely it were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat the king of Judah I would not look toward thee nor see thee but now bring me a minstrel and it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him and he said thus saith the Lord Make this valley full of ditches, for thus saith the Lord: Ye shall not see wind, you shall not see rain; yet the valley will be filled with water, that you may be dr- you may drink both you and your cattle and your beasts. And this is but a light thing in the sight of God; He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. You will smite every fence city, every choice city. You will fell every good tree, stop all the wells of water, and mar every good piece of land with stones. God's plan. Follow it all the way. It is simple. Make the valley full of ditches. Simple, right? You see, at times, people choose not to follow God's plan because it seems too submissive. If you remember the story recorded in Jeremiah 28, 29, when Judah was faced with the Babylonians who were about to take them captive, Nebuchadnezzar was at their door. And the people turned to Jeremiah, seek God for us. Tell us, find out from God what we should do. And everything the Lord says, we will do. Does that sound familiar? The Israelites through the wilderness, talk to God for me. Whatever he says, we will do. And Jeremiah came back with the word. Let Nebuchadnezzar take you. Go with him to Babylon. In fact, when you get there, build homes, marry, have children, pray for the peace of the city. Too submissive. The people were mad with Jeremiah. They were about to kill him because this is a suicidal mission. You you want us to go with Nebuchadnezzar? No. And they turned to Egypt, form an alliance with Egypt, and hence most of them were destroyed. Because Babylon attacked Egypt. You see, at times, God's plan may seem too submissive. But they forgot to read Jeremiah's last sentence. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of peace, to give you a hopeful end. God always tells us the end. He always. He doesn't just give us the beginning. He tells us how the story will end. But the plan was too submissive. It seemed too submissive. Another reason why people don't follow through with God's plan, it seemed too simplistic. March around the walls of Jericho, around the walls of Jericho, around the... And the armies went. Seven times we vowed a shout. Make a shout on the 7th march. You will see walls come tumbling down. Maybe God has asked you to march around your crisis, but it seemed too simple for you, right? And you stand looking at your crisis instead of marching. His plan is a little bit too simple for you. God is still the elemental force that can't be reckoned with. He's still the king of kings. Yet he carefully restrained himself. So, you can trust God's plan. Whatever He says to do, do it and go all the way through with it. Another reason why people don't follow God's plan, they think God's plan is suicidal. And this is what these three kings faced. Dig the valley full with ditches. Okay, Lord, so we're out of water. The animals are out of water. Digging in the summer heat means more loss of water. Loss of water without replacement means dehydration. And what if the water doesn't come? You just said there will be no signs of rain, no signs of the wind, but the water will come. What if it doesn't come? Suicidal mission. How on earth are we going to fight the Moabites in this state? It seems suicidal. You see, God doesn't need our opinion on our crises. He sees our crises and he knows what's best for them. You can trust his plan. I love verse 17, verses 17 and 18. You will not see wind, neither will you see rain, yet the valley will be filled with water. It will not only quench the thirst of your cattle and yourselves, but it will be, be a means of deliverance of the Moabites into your hand. That's Talking faith, putting faith to the test, and that's the opportunity, the opportunity in your crises that God presents to you again and again to trust Him in our crises. Then He adds, like He did in Jeremiah 29:11, this is an easy thing, <laughs> this is a light thing for me. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? No, there's nothing too hard for him. Check this out. You will not see wind. You will not see rain. But the valley will be filled with water. What more assurances are we seeking from the Lord? He made it plain. But no, it's too submissive. Too simple. Too suicidal. What wind are you expecting to blow before you begin to dig those ditches around your circumstances, your crises, what signs are you waiting from, for to dig through your crises? Remember, God wants to remove your crises with his wellspring of living waters that will not only refreshen your souls, but will confuse the enemy. The same water that the Lord provided to fill their needs became the solution to their problems. So why dig the ditches? One may ask, why should I bother? I asked Father Abraham. He said, I was called to go to a place called nowhere. To my wife, it seemed like no sense. It made no sense. To my family, it was totally nonsense. But when I dug through those ditches in faith, I found a better city whose builder and maker was the almighty God. I asked Moses, why dig the ditches? He said, because I am said to me, I am that I am. And in digging, I experienced the glory of God, the merciful, the compassionate, the long-suffering God. I, David couldn't wait for me to, to, to ask, and so he interjected before I could get to him. And he said, "Terry, shh, be still and know God is God. Before he could finish speaking, Isaiah shouted out, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God is Lord and creator? And those who wait upon him will not faint. He dug through God's promises. And he dug until he saw God's holiness. And he cried, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Do you want to experience God in a dimension that you've never experienced him before? Dig those ditches. Dig those ditches. Pay attention to the lessons. Dig the ditches through your crisis and the experience, you will experience the Prince of Peace. You will experience your Jehovah Jireh. You will experience the healer. You will experience a deliverer. You will experience a comforter. You will experience the high and lifted, the high and lifted one. God knew what he was saying. After all, he created the landscape of Moab. He knew there were rivers around there. He knew what the weather pattern would be like. And so he asked them to dig the ditches because in so doing, all he needed to do was raise the water table a little bit higher and water would be channeled through the ditches. See, God wants us at times to dig beneath the surface of our crises so that we can experience the living water that he puts through our crises. He wants us to be honest, dig deep, search your heart, search your soul. Go beyond, go beneath the crisis. What seems to be the problem may not be the problem. There may be a deeper issue. He wants us to get to the bottom of it. Dig those ditches and you will find something that will refresh your soul and confuse your enemy. Springs, rivers, lakes occur when the water table reaches the surface opportunities, success come when we join with our willingness to dig the ditches with God's supernatural power raising in the water table, guaranteed success, guaranteed breakthrough in our crises, guaranteed. So how does the story end? How does the story end? Verse 20 says, morning came, morning came. You see, in your crisis, weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. Morning came. Morning came. They offered meat offering. Talk to God first. First thing in the day, offer up your sacrifice of praise, thanksgiving, and worship. Morning came. And there they behold, water came by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings were come up to fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on on armor and upward and stood in the border. And they rose early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red blood. The same water that the Lord provided to quench their thirst became the solution to their crises. Moab saw the water. It looked as red blood. What Moab didn't know was that Edom had these red sandstones. So when the children of Israel and Judah, when they dug through those ditches and the water filled, then the water is going to appear crimson red. Moab caught in the trap. Oh, these three kings have turned against each other. Moab to the spoil. And they took off. And Israel Judah and Edom was able to defeat. They were able to hewn down, fence cities. What did the Lord said you were going to do? Smite every fence city, every choice city, fell every good tree, stop all the wells, and mar every good piece of land. Victory was promised. In your crisis, when God put forward a plan, follow his plan. It may seem simple. It may seem too submissive. It may seem suicidal, but God knows the end. And you can trust him on that. You can trust him on his word. I could go on and on with this story because it doesn't end. One of the problems that the, the three kings faced, they didn't go all the way with God's plan. God told them Moab would be handed over to you. Misha should be killed. But they spared the life of Misha. They spared the life of Misha. And actually, Misha caused a great indignation. They said he killed his son upon the wall. And he caused a great indignation against Israel. The word indignation, I looked up the Hebrew form, means splinter, to chip off. Basically, in leaving Misha, he caused a diversion within the alliance. And now Judah was suspicious of Israel. Edom was suspicious of Judah, and so the three kings parted ways, and they went home. Misha was free. Years later, you'll see it's the same Moab, same Misha, Moab, joined with his half-brother Ammon, and Edom, who went against Judah, Jehoshaphat. When Jehoshaphat called on God, went into fasting and prayer, and the Lord said to him, stand still. The battle is not yours, it's me. It's not by might nor power. Here's the problem. When God tells you to follow his plan, go all the way. That little sin, that little habit that you may try to cover up, oh, it's so good, I don't want to get rid of it, it will come back to haunt you. It will come back to haunt you. How does the story end? Yes, they were successful. They did not follow God's plan all the way. But they were successful because God told them how it would have ended. You and I know how the story, the conflict, the crisis that we're in, the conflict of the ages, we know how it it will end, right? God told us in Revelation 21 that he will create a new heaven, a new earth. The old things will pass away. There will be no more crying, no more death, no more crises, no more. All that will go. And God is asking us to trust his plan. He promised that he's coming back. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will return and receive you unto myself. Guaranteed. We know how the story will end. Why not trust God? I exhort you. I asked you. I am in this situation. This sermon is for me. And God spoke to me through it. And I'm asking you. Seek God's counsel in your crisis, no matter how bleak, how dim your situation looks. Seek God's counsel first and always, and then follow through with God's plan, because the end is sure. The end is beautiful. The end is sure. It's guaranteed. We are more than conquerors through him who has bought us. And he says, behold, I come quickly, And my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Do you want to be rewarded by the almighty God? To stand before him and say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you and I thank you for redeeming me. I thank you for your patience with me. Let's dig those ditches. This week we'll, we'll be going out into an untried week. Let's dig the ditches that the Lord asks us to dig. Don't run from them. Don't look for signs. Don't look for the rain or the wind. Go dig those ditches.